Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. Millions of Indian people, maybe a quarter billion, have taken to the street in recent weeks. The right-wing Modi government's discriminatory ideas around citizenship have been a trigger for the massive demonstrations. But our guest explains that's not the whole story. Historian and journalist Vijay Prashad is chief correspondent at Globe Trotter, a project of the Independent Media Institute, chief editor of Leftward Books, and the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Also on the show, a low light of the recent Democratic debate was when Bernie Sanders was explaining his opposition on environmental grounds to the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal, and the moderator interrupted with, we're going to get to climate change, but I'd like to stay on trade, as if the two weren't inextricably linked. The deal some call NAFTA 2.0 doesn't just ignore climate disruption. It will boost fossil fuel polluters in Mexico and worsen inequities in the hemisphere. So says Manuel Perez Rocha, associate fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies. We'll talk with him about that. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. A strong majority of Americans consistently oppose cuts to Social Security, the country's most successful anti-poverty program. So it's a safe bet that voters would be interested to know if a presidential candidate would try to cut Social Security if elected. Former Vice President Joe Biden has supported cuts to Social Security for 40 years. He's on the record saying things like, quote, When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans' benefits. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Close quote. When Biden ran for president in 2007, he boasted that he would ignore his advisor's advice not to touch that third rail and indeed released a plan to cut Social Security using the gambit of raising the retirement age. So when the Bernie Sanders campaign released a video of Biden stating his stance, shouldn't headlines reflect that public record? In the video, Biden says, we need to do something about Social Security and Medicare, adding that the programs can stay, but it still needs adjustments. Adjustments being a common euphemism for cuts to Social Security, often presented as a way to save the program. If Biden wants to claim he opposes cuts now, great. But responsible reporting would note yet, Joshua Cho writes for Affair.org, headlines on stories about this obscured facts and misled readers. Cho found three basic types of problem. Horse race headlines like Biden rips Sanders campaign for Social Security attacks that ignored the substance of the charge. False balance headlines Biden and Sanders clash over Social Security that imply both might have facts on their side. And worst of all, headlines like Biden demands apology from Sanders over doctored video on Social Security that reverse reality. Many articles acknowledged that Biden offered no evidence that the video was doctored or fake, but allowed the charge to stay in the headline. That's all that many folks will ever read. Of course, corporate media themselves have long promoted the 
cut it to, you know, save it approach to the major source of income for most elderly Americans that they've paid their own money into for decades as the pragmatic approach. So we probably shouldn't have expected headlines like Joe Biden tries to doctor his record of supporting cuts to Social Security, though they would have had the benefit of being true. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. U.S. elite media aren't in the habit of highlighting protest in formally friendly countries, but hundreds of thousands of people in the street throughout India should be hard to ignore. The peaceful protests have been met with brutality. At least 27 people have been killed. What is behind the unrest? Historian and journalist Vijay Prashad is chief correspondent at Globetrotter, a project of the Independent Media Institute, chief editor of Left Word Books, and the director of Tricontinent. Institute for Social Research. His most recent book is Red Star Over the Third World. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Vijay Prashad. Great to be with you. Well, maybe we could start with what's being described as the flashpoint, the Citizenship Amendment Act. CNN International used that quintessential media technique saying protesters, quote, oppose a new citizenship law that they say discriminates against Muslims, close quote. And the New York Times described the law as contentious. What does the CAA seem to do? And what is the context? How does it fit with the project, if you will, of Prime Minister Narendra Modi? I mean, this Citizenship Amendment Act is essentially the last straw for particularly uh, young people, peasants, workers, and so on. You know, the tolerance is gone now. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm having a hard time saying this because I want to emphasize that this protest is extraordinarily disobedient. People just have no faith in the government any longer. And this bill itself, if you look at it by itself, it shouldn't have tipped the scales, but it was literally the last straw. The bill itself is quite clear. It's about refugees, people who are facing religious intolerance in South Asia. Now, India is a signatory to various international treaties. And if only India, you know, ratified those treaties, there would be no need for uh, this kind of bill. But this bill is not about refugees. It's doing something else. What the bill actually says is that religious minorities in the region are welcome into India. So Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on can come into India. It explicitly doesn't say that Muslims from the neighborhood can come into India. Even persecuted people like the Rohingyas in Burma or the Hazaras in Afghanistan or the Ahmadis in Pakistan, they cannot come in. And so it doesn't actually say that Indian Muslims are second-class citizens. It says that Everybody but a Muslim has the right to come into India if they're religiously persecuted. This really annoyed a lot of people because it sort of takes India down the road of saying that Muslims are not integral to the Indian fabric. And I just want to say that it's a totally impracticable policy to say that Indian Muslims are not part of India. There are 200 million Indian Muslims. If Indian Muslims had their own country, it would be the eighth largest country in the world. You know, it's the same population as Nigeria. 
There's no way to put 200 million people into a concentration camp. There's no way to deport 200 million people. This is entirely about fear-mongering, about making a very large number of Indians feel that they are second-class citizens. And I think this is what tipped the scale and sent people into very disobedient protests, protests that totally disrespect this government, laughing at the government, making jokes at the government, having no sense that this government is real, as it were. And the protests have been diverse. I mean, as you, they've, they've brought together ranges of people and across sectors. Is, isn't that true? It's almost everyone, I think you said somewhere, everyone but the BJP is almost out in the street. Yes, quite right. Initially, of course, these were protests led by students, I should say, because students have been fighting against the raise of fees in public universities. They've been fighting against unreasonable kinds of programs being set up inside colleges. For instance, the study of the supernatural and ghosts, the study of the healing powers of cow urine and so on. This has really bothered students, you know, and they've been out on the streets for the last year uh, fighting really almost lonely action against the government. So students began the protest, but the student protest brought millions, hundreds of millions of people onto the street. I was in a protest in Calcutta. There must have been 50,000 people there, students in the lead, but then there were intellectuals, there were peasants, there were workers, and so on. All this culminated in attacks by the government on several public universities where students were demonstrating against the Citizenship Amendment Act. These attacks were so vicious that they brought even more people onto the street. You know, Governments calculate repression in such a way that they feel if they can repress protests, it scares people. They don't come to the streets. But I want to emphasize this disobedience aspect. Despite the crackdown, despite the repression, more and more people have been coming on the street. Poets have been writing new poetry. And on January 8th, uh, over 200 million Indians went on a general strike. This was a strike that had been planned previously by the trade unions, by the peasant organizations and so on. But they wrapped their own struggle into the struggle against the Citizenship Amendment Act. And you had probably the world's largest strike in history. Last year, there were 180 million workers and peasants on strike. This year, it's about 200 million. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary event across India. Now, do you think that Modi and the BJP are taken aback, were surprised by the scale and the vitality of the protest, particularly as they are, as you say, so disobedient, so, you know, um, dangerous? I think they have miscalculated, and I think they don't know what the exit is. Uh, One of the things, the features of the far right, uh, particularly the Indian far right, is that when they came to power this time, that is, in this cycle, in 2014 onward. When they came to power, they thought, our time has come, we're going to push the whole of our agenda. We're not going to modulate our agenda. We're not going to compromise. We're going to go all the way. We're going to push for a full capitalist agenda because they are the only party completely committed to the so-called IMF reform slate. 
including labor market reforms, which is basically eviscerating trade unions and so on. That was one plank of their agenda. The second plank of their agenda was this social toxicity, which includes a very firm anti-Muslim agenda. And they just decided, no compromise, we are in power, our time has come, we're going for it. And I think this pushback has surprised them. They've miscalculated. But because of their sense that we've got to go all the way on our agenda, they're not going to back down. You know, they have a mandate. They control parliament. They don't feel like they need to apologize to anybody. Now, the real question is how much repression, how much state violence are they willing to put against the protesters? And how much will the world, in a way, or even Indians tolerate what level of state violence is going to be seen as tolerable? Because these protests are not going anywhere. People are blocking streets in a part of Delhi known as Shaheen Bagh. There are entire families sitting on a major roadway. They've blocked it for several weeks now. So what will be the level of violence that the government is going to use against the protesters? And what will India tolerate before there is just a mass insurrection against the government? Well, finally, of course, information plays a role here. I've read Modi in the press basically saying his critics are just trying to rerun the election. You know, they're just mad that he's so popular and has a certain resonance um, for Americans. And then he he just tells lies, just tells big lies like uh, someone else we could name as well. But there's a role for media in telling the story of what's happening in India. What would you like journalists to do or or not do in that regard? Well, You know, journalists have been bludgeoned by the idea that there are two sides to a story. And I think this is an enormously unproductive way to approach reality. There are not two sides to a story. You have to, in fact, understand the story for its complexity and then see what story you want to tell. You know, there are no two sides to a story when one side is openly lying. And I think that's a challenge not only for journalists in India, certainly a challenge for journalists in India, But it's a challenge for journalists who are reporting any of the far-right governments. Because here you're faced with a situation where you're supposed to report what Modi is saying as if it's got credibility. But as I said, the rebellion is totally disobedient. It doesn't see Mr. Modi and his home minister, Amit Shah, as credible people. And somehow the atmosphere of this disobedience has not been adequately reported. In other words, People are reporting this story as if it's about the Citizenship Amendment Act. It has nothing to do with the Citizenship Amendment Act. It has everything to do with the fact that hundreds of millions of people in India feel that the direction that the Modi government is going in is utterly against the principles of the Indian Constitution. And that's what this is about. It's it's about a defense of a kind of India not the particularities of the Citizenship Amendment Act. So when reporters get caught up in minutiae, they miss the bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture in this particular case is the only thing to focus on. We've been speaking with Vijay Prashad. His latest book is Red Star Over the Third World. Vijay Prashad, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks a lot. In keeping with their time-tested support for things bipartisan, corporate media saluted the passage through Congress of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. The New York Times called it a big economic win for Donald Trump. 
who NPR says can say he has fulfilled his pledge to get tough on trade and eliminate bad deals made by his predecessors. NPR ends by noting that the agreement, some call NAFTA 2.0, includes provisions on things like the ozone layer and fisheries. Quote, but that hasn't been enough to satisfy environmental groups, close quote, who say it encourages pollution and doesn't address the climate crisis. Those critical of original recipe NAFTA were likewise consigned to the last but some people paragraphs of news stories and described as opposing trade rather than promoting a vision of it that places people and the environment above corporate profits. USMCA, as it's known, is on Trump virtual desk as we speak on January 23rd, here to suggest some questions we could be asking about it is Manuel Perez Rocha. He's an associate fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies and an associate of the Transnational Institute. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome to Counterspin, Manuel Perez Rocha. Thank you so much for having me, Janine. Well, in your recent article for inequality.org, also on IPS's site and Truthout, you say that USMCA, which was supported by the AFL-CIO and lots of Democrats, is better in some ways than NAFTA, but remains a handout to large corporations, in particular around the area of investor rights. I hope listeners will remember the outrage that NAFTA sanctioned allowing corporations to sue governments if a regulation about air quality, for instance, cuts into their profits or reduces the value of their investments. It's called Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. So what would change under this deal with regard to investor rights and that whole ISDS thing? What the USMCA creates is three distinct investment protection regimes in North America. One is a regime between the United States and Canada in which ISDS no longer exists. That is definitely a positive step. Many substantive investment protections, though, will remain, but they will need to be handled on national courts or local courts or through state-to-state mechanisms rather than through international, supranational tribunals, no? like with NAFTA. And then there is a system for Mexico and the United States in which ISDS persists. And this is a very strong step backwards because it really makes what I would say a colonial distinction. Rich countries amongst themselves are using less and less ISDS, but it is very notable that it's being imposed towards Global South country, which is Mexico. And in particularly, it is very concerning for ecological reasons. But I will touch about that later. The third other relation is between Canada and Mexico. It's not under the USMCA, but ISDS persists under the Trans-Pacific Partnership of which Mexico and Canada are members. The United States is not. Trump also pulled out the United States from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And this is very concerning also because the great destruction of the Mexican environment by Canadian mining companies. So, all in all, Mexico remains under ISDS, whether under the USMCA or the TPP, and is very concerning, particularly for environmental reasons. Well, I want to draw you out on this point that I found really interesting and disturbing. You, you note that 
developed countries are increasingly pulling out of ISDS among themselves, but not with regard to the global south. I mean, in one way, when we talk about this stuff, we're, we're, we seem to be talking about a kind of supra-sovereignty of corporations, free-floating capital versus governments. But then within that, there's still this north versus south or developed versus developing dynamic going on, right? I mean, no Mexican company has ever won a case versus the U.S. or a European country. Yeah, the vast majority of cases are European or United States companies suing countries of the global south. There are very few cases of companies of the global south suing countries in the north because there's not such capacity and, and such power to, to you know, hire such expensive lawyers and so on. This is really concerning that the continuation of this colonial system is not being dismantled, and only countries in the north are starting to get rid of ISDS amongst themselves. The European Union, for example, is starting to cancel all its internal bilateral investment treaties among their countries. Also, countries like New Zealand and Australia uh, managed to not get investor protection with a free trade agreement with the European Union under the argument that they have robust local courts and robust legal systems. But the case that I would like to make is that the countries in the north should help countries in the south to strengthen their internal legal systems instead of just bypassing them with ISDS. Well, the example of mining in Mexico really illustrates what this can look like, and I know your report, Extraction Casino, explores this. Mining companies file suits against Latin American countries because, you know, why not? They, they might not win, but they have the time and the money to just, you know, roll the dice on it. But the people at the sharp end are communities that are trying to protect their land or trying to protect their health. The, the deck is really stacked. Here. Yeah, exactly. In the report extraction casino, we examine 38 cases of mining companies, mostly from Canada or the U.S., that have been filing dozens of multi-million dollar claims against Latin American countries. The World Bank's International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID. This is where most of the suits come. This is a really assault against the self-determination of countries when they try to enact responsible environmental policies or other kind of policies in the public interest. And Mexico just last year received two huge cases of two U.S. companies, two mining U.S. companies under NAFTA. One is called Vulcan and the other one's called Odyssey for the total amount of $4 billion. I didn't say million, I say billion dollars. That's a huge amount that many countries just cannot be subject to particularly poorer countries like countries in Central America where I've worked a lot and other countries in Africa, for example, or Pakistan that also received a $4 billion demand. And this is really provoking more than anything what is called a regulatory chill. It's withdrawing or subtracting the capacity of governments to enact responsible environmental policies that, above all, help to mitigate the climate crisis that we're living globally. Well, we can't fight climate disruption without reducing the value of somebody's investment, period, you know. Right. Um, and, and it's bizarre to make laws that 
environmental laws that corporations can then just dodge by outsourcing. I mean, it, it's as if we're living in different worlds, you know, where the, the climate effects or the pollution here don't affect anybody else. Of course, it's not true. But it seems as though the left has been a bit on the back foot in terms of trade and globalization. And I wanted to ask you what a progressive vision of trade policy looks like. How is it different from what we see now? Well, the problem is that future agreements, including the new NAFTA, they're all about expanding more international trade and pushing more for increasing the supply chains. And this is what is really exceeding the planet's ecological limits. We think that a reformed international trading system must be, above all, tolerant of different ideas about how our economies and societies should be organized, and not only under this principle of more trade, more growth is better. So we have lots of proposals. We also have a paper called Beyond NAFTA 2.0, in which in our report, we, among many other things, we propose a new trade treaty framework that supports core progressive policy priorities, such as universal health care, strong public services, and robust environmental protection, and resolute action on climate change. There is no mention about climate change or the climate crisis in the new NAFTA. It's, it's clearly the same pattern of expanding trade, expanding investment, and expanding the depletion of the environment in different countries. Well, finally, my biggest problem with media, I think, has been the way they've played kind of a bait and switch. You know, when NAFTA was coming through, the New York Times said it would bring jobs, wealth, and economic activity throughout the continent. You know, the Washington Post said opposition to the agreement is rooted in dark forebodings, almost comically out of proportion to possible results. Well, then when NAFTA did not result in jobs, wealth, and economic activity throughout the continent, these media promoters just turned and said, oh, but it's not as bad as critics said it would be. You know, they, they just kind of left yeah. their promises behind. And I think trade deals in general are kind of pre-approved by the media. You're either a smart person who understands it, or you're a Luddite, you know, with a special interest who's trapped in the past. I wonder what you would like to see journalists do more of or maybe less of in reporting, not just on the new NAFTA, but on trade deals in general. Well, what they should do in general is make the connections between the climate crisis that we live in, but also the refugee crisis from countries like Honduras, El Salvador, and what free trade agreements have done in those countries. Nobody talks about CAFTA anymore, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, but that agreement has only worked for the elites of those countries, and it has not given all the jobs that they promised they would do. So there are economic disruption all over the world, created by free trade agreements and also neoliberal policies and structural adjustment policies enacted from the World Bank and the IMF. There's little connection between the migration crisis, the poverty, rampant poverty in so many countries, and violence, and economics, no? So I think this is something that we don't see in the mainstream media very much. We've been speaking with Manuel Perez Rocha of the Institute for Policy Studies. You can find the work we've been dis- discussing online at ips-dc.org. Manuel Perez Rocha, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.